Good morning, LBC Radio. My name is Corey Rosen with the Story Podcast. Today I have a lovely guest, Mr. Doctor, Doctor, not Mr. <laughs> Mr. Doctor. Mr. Doctor, uh, Robert Bigley. Dr. Robert Bigley enjoys a multifaceted career that seems to broaden with each new season of life. He is the founding director of the Trust Performing Arts Center and director of choral and vocal studies at Lancaster Bible College, where he conducts the college chorale, chamber sing- and the chamber singers. He ensembles... He and his ensembles frequently collaborate with other musical groups, including modern Irish hymn writers Keith and Kristen Getty, Dove Award-winning artist Michael Card, international recording artist De- Declan O'Rourke. 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 Declan oh, O'Rourke. He's an Irish boy. I cannot roll That's my right. R's for That's the right. life of me. <laughs> Three years of Spanish have done nothing for me. Uh, the, he's all, we've also worked with the Grammy-nominated... Uh, ensemble New York Polyphon- Polyphony. Polyphony. Nice. <laughs> I took. I promise. I have a <laughs> composition degree, <laughs> as well as the Lancaster Symphony Orchestra, Opera Lancaster, and even an appearance on the Christmas album of the Grammy-nominated metalcore band August Burns Red. Yes. He has taught middle school, high school, community college, and four-year college in both private and public institutions. That was twice listed in Who's Who among America's teachers. Bigley has conducted a variety of ensembles throughout his the years, including the Greater Miami Youth Symphony, Opera Lancaster, the Cascade Symphony, the Orquesta, 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 <laughs> Sinfonica Maria de Borges, uh, Barcelona, <laughs> and has led concert tours around the world, including Ireland, China, Spain, with his LBC choirs. He has acted on screen and stage in productions throughout the country, most recently with the Horstwork, Historic Fulton Theater, Prima Theater, and Servant Stage Company. Dr. Bigley holds degrees from the University of Washington, the Eastman School of Music, and the University of Miami. He is married to the pianist and music director, and might I say, a wonderful woman, Yes, Kendra Bigley. So, with all that said... (laughs) (laughs) Podcast is over. We're out of time. Thank you very much, folks. All right, well, this is a lot of stuff. Yeah. What first got you inspired to do music? Oh, you know, probably my mom. So my mom and uh, was a beautiful folk singer. Uh, she's she still is a, a singer. Mm. Um, she's still beautiful. Um, <laughs> uh, get, she played guitar and sang folk music. Um, and my uncle, her younger brother, and um, another guy had a trio when I was growing up, a little folk mm. trio when I was growing up. And so that was probably my first exposure to, um, you know, performance. I was five. Five. Yeah. And then um, four or five. And then soon thereafter, our the kindergarten where I attended um, put on a little play and I was cast as the lead. And, oh, wow. uh, and so I had a, there's pictures of this somewhere. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I remember I was a knight, and they they made my helmet out of a a milk cart, like a, a gallon jug. Oh yeah, of course. And uh, you know, cut away was important. Then wrapped it with tin foil, mm. and uh, and that might have been the extent of my costume. I don't remember, but <laughs> somehow I got the bug, the acting bug, and the music bug as, at an early age. Well, that's that's awesome. So obviously, you, um, I, I'm not going to say obviously like I know. 
But <laughs> then you, I guess you grew out through through your schools doing uh, plays and then eventually musicals. Yeah, yeah. My, I um, I started doing. Uh, I played Oliver when I was like eight years old in the in the musical Oliver at a local production. I grew up in the, in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. Mm. And um, and then I started doing commercials when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah. It was really fun. I can remember I was, again, I was eight and I had not started playing baseball yet. Um, not, I don't want your audience to think that I'm actually a baseball player. I, <laughs> I played Little League because my stepfather um, made me, but it was good. I mean, I, <laughs> anyway, um, so the coolest thing about the commercial is that my, my character was on a baseball team and I got oh. to wear a baseball uniform. And I remember that was really cool. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it was yeah. for it was for TG Lee Dairy in Florida. They're, they're still around. It was sort of be like, um, uh, like Turkey Hill here. Ah, know? gotcha. Um, and so uh, so it was for their chocolate milk, and the the company was called TG Lee. So the the product was called Choc O Lee. Of course. And so in the middle of the O was my cherubic little eight year old face. Um, as part of the logo. Oh, that's that's really yeah. cool. And I can't find any evidence of this anywhere. So maybe it, maybe I dreamed it all, but I'm pretty sure it it was real. That's that's so, that's so interesting. <laughs> um, how do you even find the? Because this one thing I've always wanted to know how how does one even find that? Did your parents have to find it? I was I assume so. You didn't well, find it yourself. You know, actually, I think that the casting director for that came to the production of Oliver that I was in because it was right around the same time. It was the same gotcha. month or so. So it must have been. Yeah. So I was discovered. Uh, so th- did your acting cro- career just grow from there? No, no, no did it, it crash down? Ended, it ended right there. Uh, no, I uh, I got more interested like in in band when I went to middle school. I got interested in band, started playing the trumpet, and I um, went through my awkward stage. And you know, my my mom was awesome, and she was encouraging me to do things, and she was sort of my manager. <laughs> I remember it's laughable now, but I think I got paid 75 bucks for that commercial. It was a TV commercial. I was also on the radio and I was on billboards. Oh, wow. And uh, so looking back on that, that was an atrociously small amount to get paid. Right. But my mom talked them up from 50 bucks. So, oh, hey. So she, you know, she did a great job as my manager in that moment. Um, no, and then, you know, I don't think, that, it's interesting now because I know a lot more about the industry. So, like the opportunities that my kids have had, a lot of them are because we we knew what to do, you know. And my my mom didn't grow up in the industry; she didn't know what to do, and right. I never had a manager or anything like that. So I didn't really do much more than that, except for school productions. Um, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was doing more musicals and played Harold Hill in The Music Man my senior year of high school. Oh, nice. and, yeah, but then you know, all along I had been going back and forth between, you know. Uh, doing ensembles as a singer and as a trumpet player. And by the time I went to college, uh, I'd already, I thought I, I, I imagined myself a singer songwriter mm. and uh, I thought I wanted to be Billy Joel. So I went to the university of Miami, which had a great pop program at the time. And I got there and I was about two years in and I realized that, that at this one school, there was about three or four Billy Joel's better than me. Oh, okay. <laughs> So I looked around, mm. I had sort of this Christ. I wasn't yet a, a believer uh, but I had this this crisis of career, if not a crisis of faith, and I looked around and I thought, okay, well, what can I do better than anyone else I know my age? And I had been conducting uh, since I was a junior in high school. My high school choir director saw these leadership skills in me and wanted to give me the opportunity to grow in those. And so, so um, I, she allowed me to conduct the high school choir and got to take them to festivals and uh, 
you know, got a superior at state and all that jazz. And so I, I thought, well, okay, by the time my sophomore year of college rolled around, I decided, okay, I'm going to be a conductor. And um, so then opportunities started to come along. And it's actually neat because LBC is doing uh, the production of Into the Woods in the fall. Yep. And as a junior in college, I conducted the very first college production of that. 30 oh, wow, years ago. really? Yeah. That's... So I'm excited ah. to see it on our stage. I'm not conducting it this time around. I decided it was too much to take on in the fall, but, um, but I love that show, and that was the first show that I ever conducted. You said I've done it once. I can't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing: like it's like like your experience. Like you sort of announce that you're a composer, right? Mm-hmm. So then these opportunities come along, and and people are like, "Hey, Corey, you should write this thing." And right? Yeah. This thing. And, and it, the same thing for me in college. I was like, I'm a conductor. And so I had these opportunities. Somebody was doing their senior trombone recital and asked me to conduct a little string orchestra that went with it. And so I got to conduct a 20th century trombone concerto, you know, and, and Into the Woods yeah, right, and all yeah. these other opportunities. So that's, yeah. that's so interesting that you kind of had like the imposter syndrome when you came to college because I very much had that. Did you? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, I, I came in as a percussionist and I also came in with Matt Cross. Oh, so, yeah, that'll so, do it. That'll yeah, do that, it. That'll do it. Yeah. Matt Cross is is he's insanely talented on the drums. Yeah, and uh, I also came in with like you know Zach Fernback, this quadruple threat dude, <laughs> like good looks, can dance, uh, good singer, and I uh, was was can dance. Right, I think that's the. That's the oh actor actor uh, yeah yes. so there's there's the He's four triple threat plus the good plus, plus the good looks insanely yeah. good looks yeah and then like Matthew Wilhelm and and Britt Tarkowski yeah. like all these like powerhouse musicians right, right. I'm like why am I here <laughs> how did I get in and you um, found a place though I did find a place yeah. yes um I found a place with only one other student like Lane Burke Holder oh, who right. was who was also like miles ahead of me and anything that I had never really written anything before I came here. Okay. Did you come in as a comp major? I yes. You did? Uh, okay. Well, so th- I, the school messed up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, I auditioned as a comp major, um, and uh, but somehow they classified me as a as a uh, percussion performance. Percussion performance. I remember that? Yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't remember ex- and it got to the point where I uh, started doing percussion and composition lessons at, at the same time, but. If I'm in all honesty, I'm really happy that happened because my percussion, like my, uh, I didn't like to practice. <laughs> so my uh, percussion score, and I just didn't really want to do percussion because I, I felt so, I literally roomed with Matt Cross too. Wow. So yeah, yeah. So it, it was like, it was, um, he's an awesome dude. I love him to death. He's one mm-hmm. of my best friends, mm-hmm. but it's, it's slightly discouraging yeah. when you have uh, a Matt Cross who can, who can absolutely do on like a six beat set and i can barely hold a beat on a drum set right i was more of the auxiliary percussionist sure. um so uh yeah i almost got kicked out of school because of my low gpa for the uh performance side how interesting yeah it was only my composition uh stuff that saved my butt yeah <laughs> with that yeah yeah so well that's that's god pruning right and right right yeah <clears throat> so that so that was interesting uh, so you went to college, you got this conducting job. Um, what goes on from there? How do you, because uh, I remember you saying something about going to Seattle, like Washington. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a few steps ahead. But so, yeah, so I, um, that same within months of me making that decision to become a conductor, 
um, I assume completely unrelated, but God's sovereign and I have no idea, um, that summer was when I became a believer. Mm. So the summer between my sophomore and junior year, it was actually my music theory professor that led me to the Lord. Um, and his name is Bob Gower. He's still a working composer. He's retired from the university, but he's the music director at a big church down in Miami, and mm. we still stay in touch. Um, so I'm really grateful for his ministry. And I, th- and I think that it was that experience during that crucial time of life that really gave me a heart for college students. Um, and I think that's why I've invested most, by far most of my career as a college professor. So I went straight from the University of Miami. When I, when I decided to become a, so I was a music business major in undergrad, and um, it was actually called Music Media and Industry. <clears throat> And um, I did that because I thought I wanted to produce my own records. Like right, I said, right, I wanted to be right. Billy Joel, right? So um, when I decided to become a conductor, a lot of people tried to talk me into switching to music ed, but I knew that it was going to take extra time, and I just didn't want to do that. So mm. I, I graduated with a Bachelor of Music in Music Business and then went straight to my master's degree at the Eastman School of Music in conducting. Okay. And at the time, they had a, joint, uh, a combined program of choral and orchestral conducting because I thought I wanted to do both. And that's where I met my wife. She was uh, finishing her undergrad in piano performance, and we were both involved in the same Christ, uh, Christian ministry there. And that's how we got connected. And um, yeah, so we got we got married right after we graduated, and moved to Miami, where my first job was. So I moved back to my. I swore I'd never live in Florida <laughs> again. And it's it's important for your audience to know that don't make don't swear those things no. because you know, it was going to be pulled back one yeah way god god has such a great sense of humor when it comes to that stuff what is, what is that old you know saying if you ever want to make god laugh sh- tell him your plans right yeah um, <laughs> so uh all i knew was that i didn't want to live in florida again and then we ended up living for four years in miami but it was a really fruitful time for us and our first two kids were born there and i grew a lot as i, I was the um, music director for a, a prep school down there a really ritzy prep school and um they paid their faculty terribly, but somehow we had these huge budgets. And so I got to do all sorts of neat stuff there. And that's cool. Um, and then I was also director of the Miami Youth Symphony, the Greater Miami Youth Symphony while I was down there. And uh, so it was great, but it was a rough time to be in Miami and a lot of crime and crack cocaine was still a thing. Yeah, and, I was just going to ask about that because that's what, yeah, I, I forget how old you are, but that's like Yeah, it was mid-90s, mid to late yeah. 90s, yeah. <laughs> So we prayed for an opportunity to move to the Northwest, which is where my wife is from. She's from Eugene, Oregon. And so a job came open at a community college in Seattle uh, to be director of choral activities. And the the community college is out in the in the Northwest. It's a sort of a different system there, but it's, it definitely does feel like the first two years of college. Mm. And, um, and we had a really dynamic program. And uh, so I was there for a decade, and it was uh, just a wonderful experience. So then what, what draw you to Lancaster PA? Okay, so... Um, while I was out there, I became friends with a man named Dan Hollingsworth, who uh, at the time was a missionary sent from our church. And he was in Spain, and he was a former professional trumpet player and was doing all sorts of cool stuff in Spain. And he and a writing partner did the very first Spanish translation of Handel's Messiah, the, mm. the first complete translation. So I got to know him. And um, and so he and I worked in Spain together. Well, he, well. Uh, soon thereafter, he took a job at Lancaster Bible College, um, and he was charged with starting the um, music worship, what became the music worship performing arts department. I was f- 
at the time doing my doctorate at the University of Washington out in Seattle. And so once he started this department, they said, hey, you can, if you want to hire somebody to, to start a music performance program, we'll let you do that. Hmm. And so, uh, so he called me up and make the long story short, we piled up our our family of five and the dog and drove across the country to Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 2007. So we've been here ever since. Wow. Yeah. So, um, that's a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is my 15th year at LBC. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess 2007 was that long ago. Yeah. (laughs) Um, back then I was just a uh, middle schooler. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, um... Were you aware of LBC at the time? Oh, no, no, no. So my journey of LBC to LBC was really a God-given one. I had uh, been into a really, really, really bad relationship. Okay. Um, To the point where it was just brokenness every single day. Mm. Um, and Did you grow up in this area? No. I grew up in Salisbury, Maryland. Okay. So, like, right off the coast of Ocean City. Gotcha. And, um... Uh, my pastor had just just randomly was like, oh, by the way, you know, you're like a senior in college, right? There's this uh, there's this college fair happening at Salisbury Christian School. Why don't you check it out? And I was like, Christian School, whatever. <laughs> but I was like, you know what? I got to go to college somewhere. So why not? So I, I went to this random school I've never, ever been to. I've only heard rumors about. And um, I there was Cairn there. There was all these other other universities that I can't remember the name of. They're not important. They're not important. LBC was important. Because, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess LBC, like, uh, t- whatever they do for the recruiters is amazing. Cause really? Yeah, I'll, the, the, recu- the recruiters are absolutely awesome. And they, they do their job very well. Wow, I'm so glad to hear that. Good. Because um, they, they, pulled, they pulled me right in. Because Karen had their, like, music engineering degree. Okay. Um, and, but, um, and, and it, but, Funnily enough, the reason why I was turned off of Karen was because it was in Philadelphia. And I, I know I've been around Philadelphia long enough to be like, I don't want to stay yeah. in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, so um, I, 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 I know Lancaster a little bit. Uh, I had known that it was like Amish country. I had known it was more like country-esque. Right. And I'm, I love living in the country as well. I'm not a very big city folk. I've been to New York at that point a few times. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is a lot. And it was during the wall, Occupy Wall Street, so oh, it, wow. it was even more of a lot yeah. than what it usually is. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but granted, at the time, I didn't know. Right. I didn't know about it. I was only like what eight or eight or nine or ten. <laughs> but um, so uh, I I just chose that, and funnily enough, my grandmother and my dad didn't want me to come out here because they were like, "Well, you're just gonna do like drugs and drink and party," and I'm like. Dad, it's a it's a Christian school first off, <laughs> and and my grandmother was like, "Well, it's gonna be three hours away. That's so long." And then and then she came up to me and was like, "Yeah, that was a stupid argument. I went to college six hours away <laughs> from my parents back in like the '60s." And I was like, "Really? You're gonna yeah, argue with me?" Right. <laughs> I was like, "Come on." That's and a good distance because you could you know if, if the laundry pile gets too high, you could always I could just go, go home back for the home. Weekend, yeah, exactly. and and yeah. that's the, that's kind of what I did for a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and, but the strangest part to me is that they wanted me to go to Salisbury university, which was known as a party hard college. Oh my gosh. So, so I don't, I don't, I don't know what their line of logic was, but they, (laughs) they let me go here and that's, that's kind of, and my life became a lot better for it. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you ended up here. Thank you. Um, so we had talked, so you've been a teacher for at least over 20 25 years. Yes, yeah, this is my next year will be my 30th year teaching. 
So you've had a multitude of students by now. I have, yeah. I started counting them. A few years ago, I started counting them up, and I got well, well over 1,000. I was like, never mind. I, was like, I can't be bothered. Yeah, yeah. So what is one thing that students make plenty of mistakes in their life? Mm-hmm. What is one mistake that you've kind of maybe seen a trend of between like music theater and whatever else? whatever other students you yeah. have had i would i would say one of the things uh, especially since the vast majority of my teaching has been in the arts and a lot of it in musical theater performance based things is i i'm not sure that i'd say the so to answer your question directly the mistake that a lot of students make is they are unwilling to be realistic about mm. who god has created them to be especially as a performer. I see it all the time in musical theater of students not embracing their quote-unquote type. And as much as, you know, uh, there's the good arguments that maybe there shouldn't be types, there are. And so if you look, sound a certain way, then you're going to be playing certain characters. And the sooner you can embrace that, the more successful you're going to be. A great example of that is a really good friend of mine is Ben Brewer, who is an actor. He's performed at Sight and Sound. Kristen Brewer? Kristen's husband, yeah. yeah. And uh, and he is uh, sort of a bigger guy, and um, he has a, a long beard. He looks like a like he would be a uh, in a motorcycle gang or something. <laughs> and he and I were just, we were at a wedding last night, and he and I were just talking about this last night, that uh, once he embraced his type, and realize, okay, I'm not gonna be playing the charming leading guy. I'm better off as the, the, the motorcycle gang guy or um, the big strong know. man. Yeah, yeah, he's gonna be he's gonna be playing the 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 Gimli characters in Lord of the Rings, not the Strider mm-hmm. characters, right? And once he once he realized that, he started to work like crazy. He just leaned into that, and he started to work like crazy. And um, if if you see especially if you're in the in in the acting world if you see that world as a believer if you see that as your mission field then you got to you need to do whatever you need to do to get into that field and if you're just going to insist on uh if you if you look a certain way and you sound a certain way and um and you're like I only want to play the the leading man who gets the girl and you don't look or sound that way then you're not going to have a career right and I can't have those, I, I don't feel like I have the license to have those conversations directly with students a lot of the times. So well, I'll say it to your general audience, be self-aware and ask other people who will tell you the truth what what your type is. And, um, and then also when it comes to talent, you know, God entrusts you with, with talent when you're born. And then when you get saved, he entrusts you with spiritual gifts. Mm. Right. And um, and you have to be sort of aware of of both of those things. And so um, I've had students that just don't have the baseline talent to have a career as a performer. And um, I try to give really subtle hints all along and they don't pick up on them. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's, you know, (laughs) I tried. I, there's only been one time when I was teaching at the community college out in Seattle. There's a, a a woman. I was I was a young professor in community college. You know, students are typically a multitude of ages, and so this woman was was quite a bit older than me. 
and uh, she was taking a voice class that I was teaching, and she couldn't match pitch. She she just didn't have the basic talent to be able to match pitch, and she was sure that she was going to be a singer songwriter and have a massive career as this. And um, and I finally said to her, I think it's the maybe one of the only times I've had this director of a conversation. I said, listen, I I hope that someday you'll win a Grammy Award and you'll be able to say, this goes out to Rob Bigley, who didn't believe in me right. and said I could never do it. And I said, but that's not going to happen. You're, you just don't, if you're passionate about this industry, find a different way to be in the industry. But it's not going to be as a singer. I'm so sorry to tell you that. It's just not going to be that. And she was so mad and uh, didn't speak to me ever again. So um, I try to be a little more subtle now with that. But I think self-awareness is something that a lot of college students lack. And and I would say, um, especially a lot of Christians, because we we don't go through the grist mill of harsh criticism. Right. One of the jokes that I say around here is that, is that there's just way too much grace around here. <laughs> Sometimes there is. <laughs> uh, I will. Yes, you are right. And I think that what we need to hear is, uh, is the truth. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I saw it that one time with a, a, a director friend of mine who is, is one of the most successful directors around. And, um, and I said, you know what? Would you ever see the possibility of me just having a full-time acting career? Because I've always, often talked about, you know, after I retire, it'd be fun to play the old guy in all the TV shows. <laughs> and um, and he said, he said, yeah, but there's one thing that holds you back. And I said, what's that? He says, you suck at memorizing. You're a terrible memorizer. Are you? I am a terrible memorizer. And, uh, and he says, but it, that's not the issue. The issue is that you don't... Uh, know how to work around that. Mm. And so he actually gave me some skills and actually introduced me to an app that helps the memorization. And he said, uh, you know, he's he's worked with with Broadway performers that are also terrible memorizers, but they know it and they um, they know how to work ahead. When they get casted in a role, they ask for a PDF of the script months in advance so they can start working on it. And so by the time they show up for rehearsal, they're memorized. In the last show that I had been in with him, now, now I've... I, I have since been cast in another show that he directed, and um, and I felt like I got actually two more since then. I got to prove to him, okay, I've learned my lesson, and but that criticism was so important to me. It changed it. Yeah. It did. It changed me as as a person. It changed me as a, as a professional. It gave me the opportunity to work in ways that I never would have been able to. Yeah, it probably had, helped a lot of your life. Exactly. Exactly. And um, had it not been for that really direct um, criticism. I, I probably wouldn't have worked for him again, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, and, and not working for this director means frankly, not working as a professional actor. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, um, you had talked about, uh, realizing that there's mistakes. I've, when I came here, I had just been off the cusp of, I, I was Shrek in, in, oh, in the Shrek the Musical. Fun. Yeah, and uh, I was uh, Backup for Beast. And I've, I've done all the – I was the Jester in Once Upon a Mattress. Wonderful. Um, so I came in with this hot head of all hot heads, <laughs> as, one, as you know, most students do. 
And then I I started realizing that my voice I'm <laughs> I was I was a part of a very local very small high school uh-huh. and I was probably maybe second best for that. Okay. Um cuz you know I come here and I'm I'm, he- I'm hearing all these people sing and it's like I'm listening to myself sing and I'm like ooh I'm sharpening a flat in all these areas and um these people can can really hit their pitches really yeah. well it's just you know, minor intonation stuff that right. gets done away with within like the first two years of college. Right. Right. Well, you would hope it would. I hope so. Yeah. Sometimes. Although if you're going to play some of the videos I, I sent you, you'll hear that I'm a little pitchy on one of my notes too. Uh, that I, I did, I did but... hear a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was live. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so it's, it's, it's always humbling to, and no one, no one outright told me I, I, I shouldn't be singing. But it was always in the back of my mind that, and that's kind of why I was kind of almost hesitant to join Corral. Mm. I, I really wanted to join Corral because I wanted to fix my singing. And knowing you, I know that uh, you give very good direction for mm. your Corral singers. Mm. So I, it was kind of my pre-lesson lessons, if you, if you, if <laughs> you, if you, if you will. That's great. No, that's good to hear. And then, I, and then I took lessons with Jeffrey Martin, and I feel like that has improved me more than it would not have of course yeah well <laughs> so. and and so you have that self-awareness that a lot of students don't have you know so mm-hmm. good for you for yes yeah, so i'm always I, people are like why don't you sing your songs like well i can't <laughs> because it's not gonna <laughs> sound good um I, i'll play the piano them and you can you can sing them because you can sing all day <laughs> and night but it's not gonna be me yeah um so knowing all of this now what is one thing that you know now that you would wish you had known when you had first started? Hmm. Um, I, if you could tell, well, I definitely had the self-awareness thing. Like that's hmm. what enabled me my sophomore year without any feedback from anyone else to decide. I don't, I sort of like you looking right. around like, I, I don't, that's not me. I'm not, I don't got that. Um, I got some feedback sort of too late in college. Ah, that's not true. Never too late. But anyway, um, I love being a conductor. I love being a teacher. But my heart, my people have always been in the theater. Mm. And um, I was a little bit, I didn't have the courage to pursue that as a career. And I sometimes wish that I had. And um, and I think that was one of the things that um, I definitely had mentors that, I don't know if they tried to tell me this or not, but I I never had the courage to push back the push through the hard things mm. to be successful, and um, and I know that you you talked about maybe later talking about this, but it wasn't really it wasn't until I did something completely out of the box um, when I ran for office that gave me the courage to be like you know what I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do it I'm fail or succeed I'm just gonna do it. That's that was a large inspiration for this podcast, actually, because I've I've been planning this for over like a year, uh, but it was just a matter of, I had I'm such a visionary. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, having a musical, having all these different big old big old plans that aren't really realistic to some extent. Okay. But they can be. Right. If you just do it. Yeah. So all I had to do was, all I literally had to do was ask. Uh, the the owner of this or the, the Ryan Giesman Ryan Giesman if right. I could yeah. borrow the radio studio and he yeah. said and he said yes and I was like 
Now I have this like multi-million dollar <laughs> setup almost. Yeah. And I don't know how much this costs, but I assume it's a lot. It's more than I got. It's more it's more than I would ever have um uh-huh. to set up. To start at least. Yeah. Good for so, you. So yeah, it's if you really want to do something, all the first step is I believe it's reaching out. Reaching out. Reaching out, yeah. Because yeah. I'm gonna have the uh future guest director of operations of the AMT. Oh cool. and uh you you know Wally. Yes. Wally from Sermon Stage. I'm going to yeah. have him on soon. And literally all it was is it was just <laughs> I typed a message. I typed a message to them through Messenger. <laughs> and they responded. Yeah. Sim- simple as that. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm really excited for the bigger opportunities just because I went and did it. Yeah. So what was the purpose behind you going into politics? So one of my best friends from college uh, lives um, – in Montgomery County, just outside of Philadelphia. And he, it's funny because when we were in school together, he was the music, the school of music's representative to the student council at University of Miami when mm. we went to undergrad. And so he's always had politics in the back of his mind. But he was working for the Kimmel Center at the time in Philadelphia uh, back in mm-hmm. 2016. And uh, this was when our state legislature um had not passed a budget for a year and a half because they just couldn't agree on anything. Mm. And he's a Democrat, and he said to me, hey, Big, Bigley, why don't you run as a Republican for state house representatives in Lancaster, and I'll run as a Democrat in, in Montgomery County, and we'll, we'll get to Harrisburg and show these guys how to work together. And uh, mm. so I was like, huh. All right, so I talked to my wife about it. We prayed about it, and I, I kept expecting these – a, a huge barrier to, 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 to come up and stop me from doing it. And it just never happened. Hmm. Um, and I just kept going and, um, I lost the race. Um, but it was the most valuable experience. One of the most valuable experiences of my, of my adult life. How many valuable connections have you made or lost oh, because of your politics? I don't think I've lost any. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, I made, I made, Hundreds and hundreds. I knocked on ten thousand doors, so I literally met thousands of my the people in my community. And the the district that I was seeking to represent is the ninety sixth district, which at the time it actually just changed a month ago, but at the time was basically the city limits of Lancaster City, mm. and we live in the city. And so I got to meet neighbors right around me and neighbors on the other side of town and people of all walks of life. And it's just incredible. And nothing builds your courage more than being forced to knock on a stranger's door, you know, not being an Amazon delivery man, like, right. right, um, To talk (laughs) to them about politics. It was incredible. And I had so many friends that walked with me and, and then at all these social events, uh, meeting people, it was just, just incredible. It was just incredible. So nothing really negative entirely? No, I mean, I. so here's the thing. I was a moderate Republican at the bottom of the ticket where Donald Trump was the top of the ticket right? for, the, for his first uh, campaign. And I had, first of all, had no idea who, who the presidential nominee was going to be when I started running because right. I started running in February and the, the convention didn't happen until the summer. Um, so I had no idea what a challenge it was going to be. Um, so I had a lot of, uh, I was, I'm not sure I would say I was a never Trumper, but I was not a Trump fan. And, um, so I had a lot of internet trolls from all around the country that were trolling me online. 
Mm. And what, one of the amazing things that I learned is that if you treat people like people, like, oh, yeah. like people that carry the image of God, mm-hmm. um, rather than somebody who is uh, just some random person from Texas, some some random message from Texas. Um, so I so what happened? Well, I, what happened was when the whole thing came out about the, his the accusations about the way that he treated women, um, that Trump treated women. I you know being a, a husband and a father of of two daughters, and um, I was like I just can't have my name associated with this guy. And I had as I told you before the podcast, I, I had been. Um, you know, a, a conservative uh, independent, but I became a Republican to run. To run, yeah. And um, so that night I went and I pulled my campaign signs uh, from the lawn of the Republican headquarters in, in downtown. I, I, I had just been hearing on, on the news about all these allegations against Trump and the way that he was treating women. And I happened to be driving to Dominion Pizza to watch a football game with my son and uh, I drove by the Republican headquarters, and I saw my signs there, and right next to Trump's sign. And I thought, I just can't. And so I went on Facebook Live, <laughs> and, and um, just explained why I couldn't do this, and pulled my signs. And boy, did it cause an uproar. Um, and I learned a lot from that too. But um, but then I got some national attention, and that's where these trolls from around the country started to to uh, comment on my Facebook page about how, uh, who, who they thought I was for doing that. Right. And so I started messaging, messaging those people individually off, offline and um, not commenting on their comments, but just messaging offline and had really wonderful conversations with people just through text message, through Messenger, mm-hmm. uh, Facebook Messenger. And all of them, there was probably couple dozen, all of them pulled down their comments. Every single one of them. After we messaged, and I just explained to them the situation and who I was and, um, and why and why, and they they couldn't believe number one that a that a candidate would reach out to them individually, and number two that they were being treated like a human. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing happened. <clears throat> excuse me. The same thing happened with um, somebody locally um, who I had. I had met, and they they were actually a Democrat, and they were accusing me of being a certain kind of person. And so I invited them out to coffee, and we sat and had coffee together. And um, and again, they changed the way they talked about me. It's insane what um what you what happens when you actually treat somebody like a person yeah. instead of just like an object, right? It, because it it becomes so much more personable. Yeah. Because behind a screen, you can message anybody and say anything without any recourse. Right. And oftentimes they're not going to respond. Right. So it's, it's, I I truly believe one way to like for societal change is to treat others like actual human beings instead of vilifying them for, because there's a reason behind every policy. There's, 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 it's like, have you ever heard of Daryl Davidson? Mm -mm. No. He's a guy, he's a a black musician who uh, made his way to fame by, Going to KKK rallies and de-radicalizing like actual neo Nazis and actual like white wow. heavy white supremacists, he has collected over I think two hundred to three hundred hoods. Wow. Yeah, and um, the of, way he did of it, guys that surrendered their hoods to them, of guys who surrendered their hoods to him, and he he's, he he said that 
you just gotta treat them like people. Right. And they have they have their legit reasons. It's just all missing context. Right. Like the the you know the statistics fifty percent, thirteen percent, those those statistics that yeah. that are out there that are misrepresented, uh, and mis can be misconstrued to these racist beliefs. Right. So he just went out there and talked to them, and gave, they gave up their hoods. They yeah. gave up their yeah. So it, it's it's really interesting how you can just go to somebody, talk to them, yeah, <laughs> talk talk for them just a little bit, and change their entire worldview because now they know you. You're not just yeah, a random person, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I, you know, I mean, what he did was far more noble than what I oh, did. Oh, for sure. I was basically uh, defending uh, yeah. my own honor, but um, but I I do feel like that. Um, that I was able to to touch people at their at the humanity level. We're all made in the image of God, mm -hmm. and uh, so if we start there, then then everyone carries beauty and kindness with them somewhere, right? You know, and reasonableness and reasonableness at some point, yes. Yeah. Um. So, talking about um, differing opinions, how to. How do you, because you're in the theater world, the theater world is, is secular in some areas. Sure. How do you deal with being a Christian in a non-Christian environment? Well, I, I would say like anyone that works anywhere other than the church or a Bible college. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so we are carriers of the gospel wherever we go. And um, I feel like for me, uh, my mission field, if you will, are the, well, for anyone, your mission field is the people that you're around. Mm -hmm. um, and um, unless, you know, God calls you to go somewhere extremely different, a different country or what have you, um, we are carriers of the gospel wherever we go. And so we have to live out the first things of the gospel wherever we are. And, um, you know, following Christ, living in the way that honors Christ, in a way worthy of the of the gospel with which we've been called, the calling with which we've been called, mm -hmm. um, wherever we are. And so for me, you know, I have a lot of a lot of friends, a lot of alumni from here who um, who feel that they're calling, and that's the, the, the term calling is something that I'm uncomfortable with, but their assignment is to be at Sight and Sound where the ministry is clearly happening on stage, right? Mm -hmm. The stories that they tell are literally the Bible. Yes. Um, and you know, I think the assumption is that most, if not all the people that they're working with are also Christians. And so the gospel message that they're delivering is on stage. For me, um, I feel like working in, in mainly secular settings gives me the opportunity to be able to be a carrier of the gospel backstage mm. uh, in the dressing room and having conversations with people that I love about the person that I love the most. Right. And um, so it's not intimidating to me at all. Just like if, you know, if, if you have a family member that works in an office, uh, you know, working for, I don't know, for T-Mobile or whatever, like it's, it's a quote unquote secular environment. It's not an environment that has been set apart to be, um, owned and operated by Christians. Um, it's, it just, it takes the same amount of courage to have a conversation there as it does with a fellow actor. Um, the other part of that equation is the types of shows that I would say yes to. Um, and I actually love playing the bad guy. <laughs> it's my favorite thing to do. Um, because it, I, I think playing a, the quote unquote bad guy well 
um, requires an understanding of the human nature and the human experience and, and requires a depth of acting that uh, is maybe not as difficult for me in playing uh, the good guy. Especially as Jekyll and Hyde. Right, yeah. right, right. What I I didn't play Jekyll and Hyde. I was oh, no? I was a different character in that. Yeah, oh. but oh yeah, um, that's right. You did but say that. like I you know like in Titanic, I played Ismay, who was a real historic character. He was the one that that owned the company that built the Titanic, and he was yes. um, and he survived the sinking of it, and um, was definitely vilified in the press afterwards, and you know to that end, villains. Real, real people that are villainized do not see themselves as the bad guy, right? And so there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of depth of character to that. So all that to say is, I like to play the the villain, and um, it's important for that person to be seen by the audience as a villain, because there is good and bad in the world. There mm-hmm. is black and white. There is good and bad in the world. And uh, so if there's a story that is a redemptive story and I can help tell that story by being the person that gets their comeuppance at the end, right? Um, then I, I like to be a part of that. Uh, but there are some stories, and I'm not going to list them here, but there are when I'm considering a show to audition for or a role that I've been offered, um, even though there's going to, there might be some things in it that I disagree with, if ultimately... Um, good prevails, and uh, and evil is seen as evil. Then I I will have a tendency to say yes to it, probably even more so than some of my other Christian brothers and sisters who uh, who are in the performing arts. Well, that's 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 interesting. Yeah. So obviously, your um, faith has probably been challenged a lot in those areas. What is what is the biggest way in which your faith has been challenged within your career? Well, I mean, I think that in in one sense, I and mean, I'm not sure if this is the, the, the answer you're looking for, but in one sense, to have a career as a performing artist takes more faith than, than I think any other career. Because, uh, uh, for a Christian in the performing arts, because you have to trust that God is sovereign and that the work that you're doing as you hand that off to him, he will use it for your your good and his glory. And uh, especially if you're going to be in the situation where you're going to have to be saying no to things that um, that the the world's going to be like, how on earth did you say no to that? Mm-hmm. Like that's a huge role. Like you could become a star if you. Right. I've, I've not had that problem for the record, but um, <laughs> but I have like my friend Ben that I was talking about earlier. Um, he has said no to really major TV shows that he just felt like I can't, I can't portray that character because um, he does evil things that don't get punished, <laughs> mm. and um, so it it takes faith. It takes faith to be a performer, no matter what. It takes a lot of faith to be a Christian performer because you have to say no to things you might choose to say no to things that other people would say yes to, and building you you're really building a career like it's it's job after job after job after job that gives you a career and um so i would say just being in that field in general i am grateful that i didn't have to do that to raise a family 
Mm-hmm. You know, I had a steady job with health insurance and steady income. I mean, I'm a professor, so it's not like I'm a wealthy person, but I was able to feed my family right. for for all these years. And now my youngest daughter is a junior, finishing her junior year here. And um, so we'll we'll get her through college, and we'll see what God does after that. <laughs> but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna drop everything and become a professional actor. Right, right. Because uh, I don't have the faith for that. You know, maybe someday I will. I had the faith to run for office, so who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, it take, that takes a lot of faith yeah. to run for office. Yeah. Um. So our time is kind of closing down because you said you only had, had an hour. Yeah. Right. Um. Do you want to introduce your pieces? Yeah. Sure. So um, these are a couple of recent projects that I've done, and um, let me see, which one are you doing first? Unfortunately, they're not named. <laughs> There's a video one and video oh, two. Yeah, let me see. If you do, go back. So okay, vi- yeah, video one. Video is... one. So this is a a project that I did a, exactly a year ago. A friend of mine named Tyler Hoover is a composer and writer, uh, and he's he's written a new musical called The Prodigal. And that was on my servant stage, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And servant stage did a staged reading of it, and this is one of the songs. So Henry, uh, it's a it's about a farmer up in upstate New York who has two sons, and one wants to stay and run run the farm, and the other one wants to go into uh, business in New York. And you can imagine what it's actually based on the right. story, right? Yeah. So this is the opening. This is Henry's opening song, my character's opening song, and he's talking about just how great it is to be you know, working the land that he grew up on. So here's a little snippet of his song, um, uh, Where I Belong, I think is the name of it. Do you think I built all this just to see my son haul ropes for a living? I think you built it so you wouldn't have to see me at all. The foolish son believes Here we go again That he could find a better way Always the same Old so this is a different song. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let me set that up this one, uh, since we have this one queued up. So this is um, from the musical Amazing Grace. And um, this was the first regional production of it. And, um, and did I send the wrong video with the wrong title? Uh, well, okay. I, they literally came in as video one, video oh, both. So, so yeah. So if you want to play that one again that you just played, right? So, uh, so this is Captain Newton, who is the father of John Newton, uh, true historical figures, true historical both figure. of them. Uh, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and this is the beginning of the musical. Captain Newton was, had a whole fleet of ships, and um, his son John Newton was a scallywag. And this is their argument at the, in the opening scene. Do you think I built all this just to see my son haul ropes for a living? I think you built it so you wouldn't have to see me at all. The foolish son believes. Here we go again. That he could find a better way. Always the same old story. That only the young can perceive. When will you listen? But they must obey. You don't know what I need to be truly alive. You don't know what you're Not enough to dream about your life the way you wish it could be. So let me prove I am a man who can stand against the sea. You will see that to be truly 
is truly a wonderful story oh yeah like yeah. the actual like story behind it because john newton uh, that's the guy right right he was a, a slave trader wasn't he, he? was yeah he this was. this complete 180 of of i forget exactly what happened to him that made him do the 180 um a, a variety of things and there's actually a wonderful book called Amazing Grace about his whole story. But yeah, when when he when he says that uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he really he, he literally he was yes. like the scourge. He of He was the a earth. wretch. He yes, was an absolute wretch. That project was really neat because um, there was several LBC students in that performance. Yeah, it and, happened here, um, didn't it? It happened. They performed it here. Yeah, and even though it's a servant stage production, they performed it here. And the the writer of of the show was involved in the production and came and met with our students and you know a Broadway composer was here on campus. That was a neat experience. Yeah, yeah. well, there's been many. Snarky Puppy was once here. A snarky Puppy was <laughs> not here. Actually, oh no, uh, no. I wanted to bring them, um, but um, but they they didn't come. Ranky Tanky was Ranky here. Ranky Tanky. Ranky Tanky was here, and there was like I don't know, eighty people in the audience, and then like. A uh, month later, they won their first Grammy Award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the story I was thinking about. Yeah. That's another facet of my life as a, as a presenter. Like, you know, I'm the head of the arts and culture series here. And that's another thing that I stumbled into because somebody asked me to do it. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll try it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> if you're willing to be on again, I would love to talk about uh, the trust performing arts and how do you get these giant guests yeah. that, co- that come we'll in. Like that. My, my, that Mike Block, uh, Sandeep Das. Yes. The two people that recognize my laugh in, <laughs> in the audience. <laughs> An incredible moment for me, I must say. That's awesome. Well, this next piece uh, is actually what we're, what we're going to... The one that I already set up. Yes. And and it's just, it's, I love what, you, and you know too, because we've we've talked about your new stuff. Um, I love helping bring new work to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, to light? To life? To life, both. To life. Um, and so both as a conductor and as a performer, I, one of my favorite things to do is staged readings because you're the, you get to be the first person to play that character. Mm-hmm. And, um, and actually, um, with, uh, with Chris that wrote, uh, Amazing Grace, um, right before I played this character, I went up and, and did a staged reading in New York of a piece that he's writing about William Penn and, um, so like the William Penn who's established yeah, Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah. yeah. So Chris Smith that wrote amazing grace is writing a new musical about William Penn. And, uh, I got to be a part of a stage reading up in New York about that. And then, uh, this one that you're about to play was, um, was a f- several months ago, but then also a friend of mine from Seattle who wrote a new musical, uh, had a stage reading in New York and I got to go up and be a part of that. And I, it's one of my, it's, it's great because it pulls together my skills and my weaknesses. My skills are, are, 
you know, sight reading and learning music really quickly, mm-hmm. picking up on a character and, and and creating that character. I get to do it, I get to be the first person to create that character. And then um, stage reading, you do it with music in hand, so I don't have to memorize. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so this one that you are going to play now is uh, from the, the mu- new musical Prodigal, and this was the stage reading of that. The rustling wheat sounds like the ocean tide As the haze sweet smell comes dancing on the air And while some might pine for something more I'm satisfied I know there's nothing in this world that can compare (laughs) Let the world outside forget me I don't care Give me hills that roll forever Give me rivers that run wild Leave me breathless With the wonder of a child Give me tender earth beneath me Give me roots secure and strong Keep your trinkets Keep your fame Give me a song Though the greener grass may thrill It won't last long So long as sunshine grows the grain And providence provides the rain I know that I am right where I belong And that was a little snippet from the Prodigal. From Prodigal, yeah. Prodigal. Isn't that a beautiful song? It it is a really beautiful song. It's 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 uh amazing to me how many times somebody can make something catchy. Right. Yeah, and Ty- that whole musical is bound for something great. It's Tyler is a really wonderful uh, composer of melodies, especially. He's also a good orchestrator, um, which well, you that, didn't really that's hear a, that, that's but, a double. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's not always don't, don't always go no, hand in hand, as you not know. At all. Um, and so it was just a real honor to be the first person to play that character and to sing that song in front of an audience. Yeah, that's that sounds like a powerful song. Yeah, and I've actually used that song for auditions since then. So. Oh uh, yeah, 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 I, I yeah. don't, I believe it. <laughs> Well, Dr. Bailey, this has been a wonderful time. It has. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're going to round out our time on the radio. Where can people find you and support you? Um, if, they, uh, if they're on social media, it's at RF Biggs. My middle name is Franklin, so RF Biggs. Right, that's Instagram. And Instagram. You have and, a Facebook page. Facebook, yeah. Robert Bigley. Yep. Uh, I don't. Do you I have a website, robertbigley.com. And nothing on Spotify? Nothing on Spotify. On Spotify. No. I, I interview a lot of people on stuff on Spotify. Oh, that's and awesome. Maybe someday, but not Maybe yet. Maybe one day. Not yet. Well, yet. we're going to go back to regular radio. This has been Corey Rosen with the Story Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>